0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws.
1: And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height.
0: And this is our podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include Doing Voices. Harry Thurston. Prehistoric alcohol. And Franz
1: Anton Mesmer. Pieces of Eight from our freebooting pals at Atlas Games is a pirate ship combat game
0: played with coins. Minted metal coins that clink in your hand. And that's it. No board,
1: no dice, no meeples, no colored cubes.
0: Just coins made out of metal.
1: To play Pieces of Eight, you hold a stack of pirate coins in your hand. That's your ship. And
0: you hold one coin in your other hand. That's your crow's nest.
1: Coins represent things like cutlasses, mates, barrels of grog. And the captain's monkey.
0: Each coin has a special ability you use to attack your enemies.
1: Your enemies being other scurvy players and their own filthy coins.
0: When coins get blown to Kingdom Come, they go to the Davy Jones locker of your pants pocket. The
1: last player with a surviving captain coin wins.
0: One of the cool things about Pieces of Eight is that you don't need a table to play.
1: Because of all the coins are either in your hand or in your pocket. So it's great for car trips. Or standing in line.
0: Also, a great pub game.
1: Because if you're doing the pub right... All the little pub tables are already busy holding your pub drinks up off the pub ground.
0: The no-table gimmick is clever, but Pieces of Eight is also a great game.
1: For example, it won the Origins Awards Vanguard Award for Innovation in Game Design, and it was a nominee for the crazy prestigious Diana Jones Award.
0: Designed by the worthy yet modest Jeff Tidball who wrote this ad copy what was too shy to credit himself.
1: How tragically Minnesotan of him.
0: Yes, I guess we'll never know who designed this brilliant groundbreaking game.
1: But we do know that Atlas Games is running a limited time clearance of Pieces of Eight coin sets right now.
0: Each set contains enough coins for four players, and the limited time price includes shipping and handling.
1: Let's recap. Pieces of Eight is a pirate ship combat game played with minted metal coins.
0: You don't need a table, so it's great for long lines, car trips, and pub gaming.
1: It's an award-winning design for expert-certified great gaming.
0: And right now, you can get a four-player pieces of a package at a limited time, drop-everything price. Shipping and handling included. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash dash po 8 That's atlas-games.com slash
1: Robin dash the letter P, the letter O, and the number 8.
0: Or follow the link in the show notes. That might be best. <laughs>
1: The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the excited argument over flanking bone-eye tell us that once again, <laughs> we have entered the gaming hut, and where voices have been raised in disputation, perhaps, Robin, you can discuss raising voices in other contexts. What are we talking about today around our Doritos in the gaming hut? So,
0: I thought I would talk about that part of the GM's bag of tricks, which is uh, doing character voices, or... Uh, funny voices, as the disparagers out there might want to say. And so, Ken, are you someone who does a lot of uh, voice work out of your own uh, mellifluous Ken-like register when you GM?
1: I have done voices. I I try and save them for uh, sort of, you know, special times. I don't, not every NPC gets their own specific voice, as opposed to I try and vary, like the, you know, the speed of delivery or the, or the vocabulary or their, you know, their, their tone or their tenor. So the, the bartender doesn't sound the same as the robot, doesn't sound the same as the wizard in terms of just, you know, what they're, what they're saying and how they're saying it, just like you're writing a character in fiction. But every now and again, yes, for non human entities, you know, I'll, I'll try and drop the voice into a, a lower register for the vampire head that lives in the bottom of the guild hall in London or go up into a, a you know, a, a robotic tone for, you know, the the hostile AI that's about to kill you now, that kind of thing. Sort of the most successful slash least successful in some ways voice I did was in a Call of Cthulhu game I was running in which a cadet branch of the Marsh family had, after being let out of um, uh, the uh, prison camps in in Arizona by a thoughtlessly liberal government, uh, had set themselves up in, in L.A., and the characters loved hearing the marsh family discussed the coming of kabo and seriously whenever they were stuck in a in a proto gumshoe moment they would go find a marsh and kidnap him and interrogate him just so i would have to do the <laughs> just voice so some make more make you
0: do the voice again yeah. um so doing a voice is a strong spice when you're running it focuses a lot of attention there are uh, a lot of benefits to it and i admit that i do uh, use voices and to create a performance aspect uh, and uh, there are drawbacks to it as well the main benefit being that it perks up the energy in the room and it encourages players to sort of step up their game and it also it does provide a sort of distinction between different characters i think you do not necessarily or, or i wouldn't go beyond that i would say you don't want to have every character have a different voice because that uh, gets wearying fast and in fact something that I'll often do is either naturally or by design I'll start out a scene uh, doing the character's voice and then kind of pull back on it a bit and uh, I think it's okay even though it's inconsistent to drop back to something closer to your original speaking voice that maybe has a hint of the cadence of the character that you've struck but having established that character you sort of Pull back a bit, but it helps the players, I think, to um, visualize what's going on. The other risk is that doing voices is amusing, and therefore, if you don't want to introduce a moment of humor into the situation, you might want to avoid doing voices although uh, I'm always kind of confident that after making something funny I can then make it horrible and scary and go back to funny and uh, not all of the voices I do are funny and sometimes I do succeed in freaking out the players with the, uh, you know the, the monster voice or the uh, possessed person voice so if you can do voices, uh, I certainly uh, recommend it. And I guess uh, the easiest way to start doing voices, if you haven't done it before, is to look for sort of the stock impressions that people do of uh, celebrities or old-timey movie actors, or also different regional accents, and see which of them you can do, and then kind of build a repertoire from there. And part, for me, of the preparation of creating a character is to kind of, a major Antagonist is sometimes I will think about uh, what that voice is if I think of a character as being one who will uh, persist from moment to moment. And then sometimes I'll just grab a voice from my sort of standard stock. So, for example, uh, Walter brennan we've discussed on the show before, he's 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 your classic old-timey crew Almost everybody can do a Walter Brennan if you just uh, listen. And uh, one of the techniques of learning how to do accents is to listen to the impressions done by other people. Because if you do that, you can, you know, you're stealing somebody's impression, but you're taking the already exaggerated form done by uh, shtick comedians from time immemorial and, and borrowing it to your purposes. I had another character, and sometimes the character will not necessarily actually sound like the person you're trying to imitate. In fact, that's probably a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. That you don't necessarily want everybody to picture Walter Brennan every time. Although I think Walter Brennan is a special case. you Actually, I think you, you do want do, people to picture but, Walter Brennan. But
1: you don't necessarily want the players to believe that the, 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 you know, the the dwarf guarding the gate actually sounds like, um actually looks like John Wayne or in any other way behaves like John Wayne if you, you know, give him a broad voice that, tells you he's a plain dwarf doesn't wanna take a lot of problems from people but you you run the risk then of having the voice have that pre-existing connotation to it which is good if what you want to say is don't screw with the dwarf unless you really want to get shot but you may also be bringing in a lot of the you know other associations and they'll be thinking well you know, what else do we know about this dwarf based on the fact he sort of sounds like John Wayne and they'll be overthinking that aspect of it.
0: Right, so in a way there the the worse your John Wayne impression is, the better. Yeah. Um, Or if you can just sort of think halfway, so for Mm -hmm. example a major enemy character in the 13th Age campaign I recently ran, I was thinking of Alfred Hitchcock as I did him, but in fact it was not an accurate Alfred Hitchcock impression it just sort of had that slow menacing cadence as the character slowly explained to the characters how he would completely mess them up if he did anything to step a foot wrong in his presence. And so... Was that Quandos foreign voice? Yeah, and and that doesn't sound like Hitchcock, really. No. um, But Hitchcock is the starting point, and so you can sort of move from a a failed impression uh, to a character who actually has their own imprint on the storyline and doesn't have them picturing Hitchcock. I didn't Hmm. want them to realize what the source of that would be. So you don't have to feel abashed by the fact that you're not a great impressionist. All you're looking for is a sort of a different cadence and a different register to put your voice in.
1: And uh, I think this is something that happens with a lot of actual actors. Once you start doing a different voice or you start talking even in a different cadence or a different tonality than you normally do, you're going to find your, your sort of thought patterns trying to match the voice you're doing, if, especially if you're already, you know, in the position where I'm I'm impersonating this guy, I'm being, you know... Uh, Quandos Vorn, or I'm being the dwarf, or I'm being whoever it is. Once you start putting your, your, yourself into that voice, you start thinking, well, what is a more effective thing to say that in this voice is going to sound really creepy or really scary or really serious? And I, I think that doing the voice with, like you said, with your sort of your major antagonists or your major NPCs can also help you with some of the role playing aspects just by. Not just reminding the players that they're, you know, talking to someone who isn't the GM, but reminding the GM that they're talking to someone who isn't the GM and let you respond to that. When you, I know that you, uh, you, you sort of visually cast a lot of your, your, your NPCs as, you know, played by other actors. Do you, if you, if you've mentally figured that this guy is the James Mason bad guy, does he then, have to talk like James Mason, very slowly and very convincingly, or does can the James Mason guy have you know a, a Jimmy Cagney voice if it if it comes out? How much do you connect the visual, I guess, appearance in your head of the NPC with with how he's going to sound?
0: I think for role playing, given that it's a verbal medium, that the sound of the voice matters more than what you're picturing. So I'd be much more inclined to flip it the other way: is that if I want to make ambiguous what the reference is and you know, unless your players are also fans of older films, they may not get James <laughs> Mason to begin with. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he might talk like James Mason, but nonetheless, might, I might describe him as a... Uh, and that doesn't sound like James Mason either, right? Not but remotely. that can be another character that goes off in another yeah. uh, direction. And another tip, of course, is uh, when you're playing with your own group at home, you're probably not playing with the people who have a wide range of... ...regional accents, although we do have an English accent in my group at home. But when you're playing, you know, an away game at a convention or whatever, you may be somewhat more abashed about pulling out your regional <laughs> accents, because, of course, the, a North American's version of a Scottish or British accent will always sound laughably wrong to someone from that that those parts of the woods... Like- and and I wouldn't pull out my uh, Australian accent for a bunch of Australians because they would probably recognize that it. it's not really a, anything at all like theirs at all. But if you do it for your own players, that alone can be enough of a signal and it's enough to have a voice that's a trope of S- Scottishness, you know, a, mm-hmm. a Mike Myers Shrek voice rather than an, an authentic Glaswegian accent. That still does the trick. And if again, if you're flair for mimicry extends to regional accents that gives you a lot of leeway. Of course, you when you're picking your accents, you want to make sure that uh, you keep the sensitivities of the matter in line and there are uh, some regional accents where you can have more fun uh, lampooning than others and others that you want to stay away from because they have a, an icky connotation right, of yeah. unfriendly imitation. Right. Uh,
1: and uh, sort of on that similar line, uh, not to go down that neck of country, because I think everyone knows what we're talking about. But do you uh, try to do, when you're doing female NPCs, do you try and put your voice in a higher uh, feminine register, or do you just sort of uh, not do female characters with funny voices?
0: I I do it very subtly, because you don't want to be a guy doing a character in drag. Right, But I do try to put a, a little bit of a lilt and just just the tiniest bit of a higher register. So, you're not doing, uh, you you know, the Monty Python old ladies. Although, well, actually, the Monty Python old ladies, again, that might be acceptable for, (laughs) you know, a brief interlude with a barmaid or or whatever in a a game where... Now, you know, Python references is a whole other kettle of fish it's and a whole
1: other to... landmine
0: Yeah. speaking of strong <laughs> spices but in general i i uh, do obviously play female gmcs and i just sort of try to do it just as lightly as possible without mm-hmm. making a, a thing of it the other thing i guess to wonder about is uh sometimes players as a player you might want to think about doing a voice for your character by definition i think you want to do a much Uh, subtler voice, uh, you want to make sure that you're not blowing your voice out. Mm -hmm. You know, when when I'm playing the evil eunuch sorcerer, that's somewhat straining to my vocal cords, and if I was a player playing this character, shortly after starting, all the other players would want to kill me. Um, Well, in fairness, you'd be an evil eunuch sorcerer, they'd have grounds on that basis as well. Evil, sorcerer, but you don't yeah. want to be that for the, the PC, right? I did once play a session of a game run by Jim Zubkovich where I played a goblin character, and so yes. I did the sort of uh, Weasley goblin Peter Lorre voice throughout that. But even then, you know, you really have to be conscious of the effect that you're having on everybody, you know. When they stop to find stop finding this amusing, uh, it's time to dial way back, either mm-hmm. dial back the number of things that you're saying, or to just dial back the extent to which you are giving a big overblown performance, perhaps in a room where everybody else just wants to concentrate on, uh, their flanking bonuses mm-hmm.
1: or on anything else at all, except for your Peter Lorre impression,
0: right? Because you, you don't, you want to make it again, like anything in role-playing, it has to be a ball that you're throwing to the other players that mm-hmm. makes it more fun and interesting for them and gives them a hook to interact with you, rather than just a show offy thing that you're doing in order to hog the spotlight.
1: Although I could sort of see it being fun. I don't think that my player group is the player group to do it in, although I've had player groups that were closer. But one in which all, every player is doing a voice, and that's part of sort of the theatrical moment. I I'd say, Let's say you're doing like a one-shot hill folk or a fiasco or something that you know is just going to be there, and that character's got to live and die at the table today, maybe that's the time to, to bring out the voice, right? So that if you're doing a fiasco moment, you've got a really great Steve Buscemi. I remember that my character in um, uh, in the fiasco game that Jason Morningstar ran for me and Paul Tevis and Will Hindmarch, I sort of imagined him as the Steve Buscemi character in this Coen Brothers movie of the assassination of JFK. And so in moments of stress, I would Steve Buscemi out. But I think that it It would be kind of fun if everyone sort of decided to sort of walk in and and self-cast themselves, and then you do that. Again, like I I think you would agree you wouldn't want to do that over a whole campaign, but maybe for a one-shot where having the character be a little larger than life is is part of the game, that might be fun.
0: And it also depends on the game itself. So, for example, because Hillfolk is in the story game vein, sometimes people come to it assuming that a really big performance is going to gain them attention and power in the storyline but in hill folk if you go too big if you have too extreme a character you're you kind of lose your maneuvering room in terms of having the ability to go one way or the other when Mm -hmm. either you're petitioning in a scene or doing the petitioning right and so players who are used to making a big splash in a one-shot game with a big voice and a big performance often find themselves sort of uh hemmed in uh, so that's one uh, thing to do, is also to tune your performance to what you're doing. So, you know, in Dogs in the Vineyard, which has a more sort of serious set of themes, you probably don't want to bust out your John Wayne or your Walter Brennan, where in some of the uh, Wild uh, West games... trail. Uh, yeah, uh, owl who <laughs> trail, example. definitely. Yeah. Uh, even the owl bears sound like Walter Brennan you're and right, owl who yeah, trail.
1: That, yes, I, that, that, and that's another thing that you can use uh, the impressions for, especially, again, in a game with a... With that kind of tenor to it. In Al trail I could see doing, like you say, the owl bra- the owl bears all sound like Walter Brennan. Well, it looks like we got some adventurers here. It'll be tasty in my beak. Uh, and then all the harpies sound like, um, uh, you know, I don't know who the harpies would sound like, but you'd cast them. Every monster would be a ridiculous bit player, kind of like the, the walk on characters in a Bugs Bunny cartoon.
0: But the harpies might be Mawina Dietwig.
1: Ma- Mawina Dietwick,
0: Yeah. That's why. Right. Yes.
1: <laughs> or May West.
0: Or May West or of oh, modeling Con, obviously playing Khan <laughs> uh, doing more like the
1: trick even better. Yes. Yeah, but the uh, but but that can uh serve, first of all, to sort of maintain the tone of of, of a game that because it's a D twenty based game is still gonna be awfully grimy when you get sort of down into it, but also helps the the player characters sort of stay in the notion that they're in a, a larger than life world where Rational action is not going to produce fun. It's just going to produce more tiresome dice rolling.
0: And for a, a one shot of a game like Owlhoot Trail, as GM, you can actually do all of the jamming in, in your Walter Brennan voice. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> now it's time to roll for initiative. And uh, now that we've had that terrible idea, it's time to move on to our next segment.
1: <laughs> Cuntsarned.
0: And guess what project touted here on the podcast is now crowdfunding on Indiegogo? I don't have to guess. I can see here in the script that it's my pals at Phoenix. As in Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. When
1: typing it into your search engine of choice, remember that all right-thinking persons and Swedes spell it F-E-N-I-X.
0: Uh, and, of course, you don't mean to make a distinction between those two things, but you can tell that it addresses the right-thinking demographic because among its contributors is elliptonic raconteur Kenneth Haidt.
1: Hop aboard the Indiegogo campaign for a Best of Phoenix anthology in English. Stretch
0: goals expand its ambition to multiple volumes. Among its Haitian treasures, Dacian werewolves. Golden vampires. And the frost-caked western Once Upon a Time in the North.
1: Plus, from a roster of other contributors, singing
0: spellcasters... Drowned
1: Oz, and the card game Phoenix Fighters,
0: plus the cartoon exploits of Burger Barbarian,
1: on Indiegogo until April 3rd, 2014.
0: The wanted posters on the wall and the clacking of tin cups against iron bars of the cell doors shows that we've once more entered our inner police precinct to unfold the crime blotter. And uh, this week in the crime blotter, I came across uh, just an offhand reference to an interesting historical fact, and that is that Harry Thurston, the less famous, uh, less accomplished magician brother of magician... Howard Thurston was mixed up with the Chicago mob, and I don't actually know anything more about it than that. But Ken, (laughs) if you were unable to dig any details up, I'm prepared to help you make them up. So, did you discover, in fact, anything about the story of uh, rogue magician Harry Thurston and his connections to the Chicago mob? Well,
1: as luck might have it, I do, in fact, own a copy of Jim Steinmeier's biography of Howard Thurston called The Last Greatest Magician in the World. And if you guys don't know Jim Steinmeier, he is probably the premier historian of magic, uh, certainly publishing for us rubes in America. And his his books are all really entertaining, very well written, uh, really well researched because he, I think he's a practicing magician, but he certainly has a lot of contacts in the magician community. He's done oral histories with a bunch of guys who are, you know, no longer with us, or he's talked to people who talked to them. So his books are really, uh, well put together And I recommend him on pretty much any topic of of the history of magic that you're digging around in. But he did do a biography of Howard Thurston, uh, which of necessity mentions his little brother, Harry, who was... Jim Steinmeier doesn't like him. He thinks that Harry was a a bad man and a (laughs) rotten, uh, no-good Nick, and that's probably true. But when you read him you know, just on the page and you don't have to deal with him every day or, you know, I I suspect read a lot of the letters that his brother Howard would write to him. You have, you, you sort of, he sort of seems like, like a fun guy to know. I mean, they, he keeps mentioning that he has all of Howard Thurston's vices and none of his virtues, but basically uh, Howard and uh, Harry Thurston both came up in the carnival and circus circuit. They they were advanced men for Ringling Brothers. they do, you know, carnival uh, midway tricks. they do uh, short cons and petty grifts. And then they both sort of flowed to the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, which, of course, was the greatest spectacle of the 19th century. It was a gigantic extravaganza, and among the other things that debuted include, you know, not just the Ferris wheel, but also the modern Hoochie Coochie show in the persona of Little Egypt, who was, of course, Syrian, um, but uh did a Hoochie Coochie dance in uh brown uh body paint, this being a different era. And people because it was it was done as a cultural exhibit, she can show way more skin than you can show anywhere else in Chicago. She became it was a downright
0: a edifying, I'm sure.
1: Downright edifying. She became a downright edifying. She became a huge sensation.
0: See, this is the problem when you start doing Walter Brennan. It's like Hunter S. Thompson. You can't stop. You
1: just, just keeps. or Lovecraft. You have to spend a, a period just sort of um, uh, writing uh, Hemingway prose to get it out of your system. Anyhow, the Thurstons were inspired by this and set up their own sort of set of basically hoochie coochie performances in little towns that they would run across uh the Midwest. And eventually Harry Thurston set up his own Dime Theater, as they were called, which is basically a carnival freak show that stays in one place in the Levy District on South State Street. And this place incorporated within it a hoochie-coochie show, which was, of course, the real attraction, and he rapidly began making a ton of money. The South State, at that point, was in the heart of the Levy District, uh, Chicago's first and greatest vice district, and he... Gee,
0: I wonder how he wound up mixed up with the, the mob, mob. It's
1: almost as though... Well, actually, he wound up mixed up with uh, Chicago politics, which is roughly the same thing at this and all other ages, and so he he became, you know, a, a client of Hinky
0: Dink Kenna, the fixer... <laughs> but people should have known from that nickname that he was not to be trusted
1: Well you know when your other choice is bathhouse John Coughlin it's just you're not you're not really spoiled for choice in Chicago at that time among among he, Hinky Dink's other uh, close personal friends and associates was Michael Finn who invented the Mickey Finn and also uh, the guy whose gambling hall was so enormous that when his partners despaired that he would ever uh, get it filled up he said don't worry guys there's a sucker born every minute. So, this is all the culture that Harry Thurston is um, Im- immersing himself in with his dime store museum or dime store freak show.
0: And was he doing um, magic as part of this show at this point or is he just an entrepreneur th- now? At,
1: at part of this show, he was just basically there. I mean, he was sort of the tough one and Howard was the was the roper, right? He would rope them in to the, to the tent to see their, their hoochie cooch dancer or their whatever and then... Harry would sort of wrangle the crowd, keep the girls in a back room, and Howard would do card tricks for a bunch of Midwestern farmers and machinists who'd just shown up to see naked girls. He must have been really good at card tricks. (laughs) That's how Howard got so good at card (laughs) tricks. (laughs) 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 But Harry was sort of
0: the, you know, the... So listen, kid magicians... (laughs) That's
1: right. If you you really want to get good... Open for strippers.
0: This is the crucible, kids. <laughs>
1: that's right. And so um, uh, Harry was sort of the the, the, the crowd control. He'd, he'd grease uh, the, the sheriff. He'd take care of all that part of it. And again, that's what the two of them became. And so Harry Thurston's little uh, dime store museum became a chain of hoochie-cooch parlors and dime store museums, not just in Chicago, but also in Ohio, elsewhere in the Midwest. And he built up sort of a small-time crime empire based basically on that. He also would run grifts. Both he and uh, and Howard Thurston would run grifts that involved uh, a small amount of sleight of hand. Uh, Harry probably picked up, you know, enough to do, you know, the, the disappearing coin. Uh, they would both do things where they would palm the, the, the bill that they were slipping into the stripper's garter, which is kind of a dirty trick on every level. But that's uh, something that they both did back in, in their in their young days.
0: So the bright line between the, the two Thurston brothers is not quite as bright as you might think.
1: No, it was a bright line that was very carefully brightened and colored in by Howard Thurston much later in his career when he was going up against Houdini for uh, King of American ma- Magicians. But the thing being that because Howard Thurston was terrible at business, made a lot of stupid investments and kept trying to do more and more expensive illusions to draw people in to his magic shows, uh, he had to keep touching his brother, Harry for money. So Harry basically was the, you know, reason that Howard Thurston could continue to be, to do vaudeville and then do uh, uh, theater shows basically for his whole career. He was always coming back to Harry for money because Harry, once he's wired in with the Chicago, you know, the, the, the a combine or whatever they called themselves before there was an outfit, he was rolling in it. He was making huge amounts of money and making very good friends in uh, other industries. There is one indication that he needed to call on some Cleveland gangsters for a favor and they were happy to do it. But at the last minute, he called whatever the mysterious favor was off and was left owing them a lot of money. And so he would write angry letters to Howard saying that Howard had gotten him into this fix. So apparently it was something to do with maybe a theater manager who needed to be leaned on, but Harry was basically that guy. There was a guy who basically uh, got the sheriff to impound all of Howard's gear in West Virginia. And so Harry is sent down to lean on the sheriff in this town in Moundsville, West Virginia, to get all of Howard's stuff back to tear up the contract that said Howard was going to have to perform in this nowhere town in in West Virginia and to get uh, the advance money back out of the guy. And all of this he did, but Harry was you know, then not shy about letting Howard know that Howard once more owed him another favor. And then at uh, sort of later on in his life, possibly due to rivalry with his brother, possibly due to him needing to do some favors for some other big guys, he put on a magic show that toured the whole uh, sort of northern Illinois, like it was a 20-city magic tour called The Mysteries of India, and it was legendarily terrible. Uh, Howard basically had like the five or six other top magicians in America working for his brother trying to support the show, but his brother had no stage presence, had no interest in memorizing lines, didn't do any sort of, you know, of the of the illusion part of the magic, and therefore the, the show was a disaster. And so people have been speculating that the reason he took that show back out on the road another year was because people realized that with all those secret compartments everywhere and a magicians traveling the equipment... There was a great way to to run liquor back and forth, and so he may or may not have been involved in bootlegging. Steinmeier is skeptical about that, but you know the rumor certainly persisted that a guy like Harry, who was who had been you know uh, wired into Chicago's uh, power structure, you know since the you know turn of the century was also probably wired into the outfit by that time.
0: So in pop culture, there's two ways to go when portraying magicians. One is to uh, stick to reality. So if you wanted to do that in, uh, if any of you are about to pitch HBO shows, the uh, several season biography of these two brothers, uh, sufficiently fictionalized, sounds like a pretty good replacement when Boardwalk Empire goes off the air. And you could, uh, you know, you've got already a great dramatic contrast between the... uh, practical guy who can't uh, do magic but knows how to lean on people and make things work and the other brother who is the opposite and all of the other colorful characters that they might be associating with in role-playing of course you could use drama system to do the family of uh, magicians and the people around them uh, involved with the chicago mob that sort of uh, as drama system games tends to do uh, writes itself yeah and i guess the other approach always is to add an element of fantasy or horror to what the magicians are doing so that there is some actual occult doing going on uh, underneath the uh, ledger domain and sleight of hand and uh, trick boxes with compartments in them.
1: Yeah. And the question, I guess, with someone like Harry, who is so patently not interested in magic... Although I should mention at this juncture that he may have opened the first movie theater in Chicago, which is kind of ironic given that it's movie theaters that finally killed the theater, uh, magician for, well, not finally, but killed them for about 80 years. Because he realized that his brother, he went on a tour with his brother in, I think, Australia, and his brother brought a moving picture as part of the, you know, crazy stuff that happens before the magic show. So as as the opening act, you'd get to show a short movie. And Harry noticed that people really were way more into the short movie than they were into anything else. So he bought or stole or borrowed an Edison kinematograph and set it up basically as a movie house, again, as part of his South Side. So the business-minded
0: brother ushers in the technology that replaces the artist brother's career basically career and and form i mean you can't ask for a, a better dramatic arc than that
1: and because it's about the movies now suddenly people in hollywood will uh, will believe that it's actually a serious thing <laughs> He um uh he winds up partners Harry does with um the, the the guys at Rex Studios, which is one of the Chicago studios back when Chicago was one of the centers of American filmmaking. Before everyone realized the light is only good in Chicago two months out of the year, and why shouldn't we go to California instead? Uh, but the Rex was not the big one. The big one was oh, I forget what it was, but it was it was up there on. Um, uh, on in, in Uptown, in the North Side of, of the city, there was a there was sort of a, a movie colony there in the nineteen teens and aughts, and uh, Harry was also wired in with those guys, uh, who again were almost certainly part of because they were in entertainment. They were probably coming under the purview of one or another of the gangsters that that ran that territory.
0: So, what's our uh, Trail of Cthulhu scenario where we get to encounter the Thurston brothers or uh, fictionalized versions of them?
1: I think the Trail of Cthulhu scenario is Harry had a device that he called the Maid of Mystery, which was basically a peep show booth. He invented the modern peep show booth where you put the coins in and the little metal. This
0: just keeps getting better and better as a history of the 20th century entertainment industry. He, he's,
1: a, he's a great guy. Is, I mean, again, you, 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 I read him and he's sort of in these little meanwhile, Brother Harry was not advancing the cause of magic at all. It's like, yes. I don't know, he, Brother Harry he seems he just like he's establishing a right.
0: relationship between pornography and entertainment technology. <laughs> that's, right. that's not an important <laughs> that's, trend to follow that's in any way. crucial.
1: It's got nothing to do with vanishing elephants. Oh, that was one of the best bits. It has nothing to do with Trail of Cthulhu, but uh, for the Mysteries of India, they bought an elephant that was supposed to be the big thing, and they were going to make an elephant appear as opposed to disappear, and they'd worked out the illusion, and then the elephant died right before the tour started, because no one was like keeping it warm because apparently little elephants in a Chicago winter do not do well. It, it
0: did not come with a manual.
1: And, and Harry blamed... These magicians that Howard had put on his tour for purposely letting the elephant die to sabotage
0: the tour. Those punk magicians killed my elephant.
1: But that could almost be a, a direct quote from the from the letters, according to Steinmeier. So um, anyway, but you, since you have the maid of mystery, you have a, put a coin in, and the and the and the and the little uh, rattly screen comes up. But instead of seeing a, a, a standard issue naked girl, you see something special for the special clientele, and that of course might be you know a piece of a of a dark young, or it might be a glowing crystal. Crystal that shines in your in your mind. He might swap that out for his Edison machine. Have well, I found this crystal that that sends up images. It's kind of neat. I'll bet I could probably put up little, a little booth and collect a dollar a peep. And you know that instead, it's the shining trapezohedron or some equivalent thing. Or like uh, if you remember that from the prose poem Near Nearlothotep is basically this kind of carny um, uh, showman with his electrical gear.
0: He's circus people. That he circus,
1: he's circus folk. Uh, as is. As is our history over in the neighboring occu- uh, consulting occultist, Circus Folk, Near Lathotep. It's not a far jump.
0: And if you've got a freak show, uh, yeah. you could certainly have uh, someone working for Harry who has a bit of the insmouth look. And mm-hmm. uh, as the adventure progresses, has uh, more and more of that. So you could uh, bring that element in. Uh, ape men, of course, are, appear both in Carnival uh, freak shows and in Lovecraft. So you could get that in as well.
1: And um, one of the things that Harry wanted to have was a museum exhibit that was basically aborted uh deformed fetuses and they would put them in jars and shine lights through them and that being disgusting enough that's already got would have players on edges on the edge but then you also you know you're you start saying eh, that's got feelers. That's not a baby at all. (laughs) It's
0: more than just deformed. This is
1: just something, you know, because you can imagine Harry sending his people out and it's like, there's a flood in upstate New York and they come back with a mygo carcass that's been put in a jar. And it's like, this is for your, you know, this is for your, I forget what he called it. It was like the, um, uh, the, the mysteries of life, I think was the name of his theoretical aborted fetus festival.
0: Right. Um, And speaking of punks, (laughs) that was the term for the display fetus in, uh, Uh, circus land was it was a punk display so it's yet another use of that term
1: so so that can be another vector for the awful and again of course the place you would get aborted fetuses before 1970 would be from criminals because that's who was performing the abortions by definition and the obviously the mob was was wired in with that as well so that's another probable connection between harry and uh, illicit doings on chicago's glorious south side
0: Right. And, uh, you know, if you're m- a more down at the rent investigator, you could be uh, dispatched to go to uh, pick up a shipment of <laughs> these uh, fetuses, uh, one of which uh, seems to be growing mm-hmm. larger than the jar. And now what you do. That's right. And um, obviously tracking
1: now the mother is going to be a, a fairly um, uh, dramatic uh, bit of investigation skill. So there'd, there'd be a good puzzle because, it, you know, this is I think that this this may not be over yet after I've burned the whole truck, because of course they're going to burn the whole truck. But yeah, that, I think that that there's a lot of of doors from creepy freak shows in Chicago's South side between 19, I I forget when exactly he begins and I'm not sure that uh, Steinmeier really knows, but if you, you could probably start him anytime between 1896 or 1906, I think would be a good, you know, that could be a good sort of started, starter decade for you. And then running basically up until um, the 30s is when uh, Harry Thurston finally, uh, you know, gives it up as a bad job.
0: Uh, Well, we've uh, talked a lot about really appalling behavior, so I think (laughs) it's time to end this segment and talk about drinking.
1: Ah. (laughs) Courts, the gurgling of beer bottles, the clink of wine glasses tell us we have entered a particularly convivial precinct of the food hut. And Robin, you have uh, poured us out a wine of extraordinary vintage indeed, have you
0: not? Yeah, I've been reading a really great book, which I'd recommend, called Uncorking the Past by Patrick E. McGovern. He's a biomolecular archaeologist, and his most uh, recent book is called Uncorking the Past, It's fairly recent, but it's uh, just sort of at the dividing point before everybody knew where the Indo-Europeans came from. So that's more an indication of how new that discovery is than his book being dated. But basically, this is a book about where drinking came from and where it appeared in the prehistoric and ancient world and its effects on spreading civilization. And if you are at all uh, interested in beverages, it it, uh, takes on an additional quality. Uh, The book, in addition to revealing a lot about uh, the origins of drinking, uh, extols the virtues of uh, moderate drinking. It posits that... Being a drinker was an evolutionary advantage, which explains why about 10% of the enzymes in your liver are ready and waiting to metabolize alcohol. Uh, So that implies that our ancestors uh, did quite a lot of drinking indeed.
1: Given that your other choice was basically (laughs) drinking uh, intestinal uh, bacteria of one or another vile kind.
0: Uh, Yeah, the author associates the advantage, the evolutionary advantage of drinking to its healthy qualities uh, when done in uh, moderation because it will uh, decrease your risk of uh, cardiac failure and uh, decrease your risk of cancer. But I'm not sure that that actually is the leading factor in which alcohol leads to reproduction in new generations of people. Uh, <laughs> that seems to me like a uh, an advantage that we reap now, now that we're uh, living to longer ages. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's not the case. Maybe the fact that Older men in a lot of communities who were uh, getting to have uh, children with uh, younger women because they'd amassed uh, uh, social power and influence. And maybe, you know, their uh, moderate drinking, if they drank moderately, uh, indeed made them longer lived and enabled them to, to uh, sire more children. I don't know. But it, it seems a little shaky to me. But it's a really uh, interesting book. And, of course, the story of drinking begins even before there are people that uh, mammals generally drink when they get the chance when they find naturally occurring alcohol which can occur when a uh pumpkin uh, starts to to rot and ferment the uh farm that some of my wife's relatives uh live on there's a, a pumpkin patch sometimes and you will see squirrels getting smashed uh, from the uh <laughs> f- fermented pumpkin juice and uh
1: I learned it from watching you mom well,
0: yeah exactly <laughs> I'm not sure if birds get drunk, I think. Uh, I don't know if I don't know
1: if they get drunk, though.
0: As a creature that flies is possibly a, a bad choice that they uh, know not to make. All of the uh, the drunkard birds got screened out of the gene pool long ago. And uh, before we get on to the, the history of people and drinking, I just did want to share a really fascinating anecdote McGovern tells about animal drinking. So if you take a group of chimpanzees and give them unfettered, access to alcohol they'll initially go nuts they'll go crazy and drink a lot and the men the male chimpanzees drink a lot more than the women and then after a while they taper off but they maintain a consistent buzz so as long as they have alcohol they'll drink it enough to remain slightly tipsy at all times if however you take a colony of rats and give them access to alcohol whenever they want it they'll go just a little crazy at first and then very quickly they will go to a point where they're drinking one amount of it before dinner each day and then a nightcap at night and then that's it most days and then every three to four days which is like every week to maybe a month in rat time they'll all get together and have a big party so uh for some reason uh rats Are more attuned to safe, moderate drinking, the habits of most people, uh, than our chimpanzees.
1: And uh, I guess that's everything you need to know about moderate drinkers right there.
0: Yes, so (laughs) so be a rat, not a chimp. Um, (laughs) Oh, oh, all right, yeah, sure, draw that moral. (laughs) (laughs) The earliest known alcohols that people drank are probably uh, mead, which is fermented honey. If enough water gets into a, a beehive, for example, if there's like a Uh, lightning strike that uh, knocks out the seal on a a tree trunk hive and then enough water gets into it Uh, if you get about 30 percent water the sugars in the honey will start to ferment and you will get a a delicious uh, sweet beverage and then the first alcohols that people started to make for themselves are probably sort of a mix of uh, all sorts of different ingredients, which McGovern refers to as, as a grog. I think that's a slightly... Uh, a historical, yeah. Yeah, because um, grog as we know it is actually quite different. It's not a mixed uh, fermented uh, beverage. But the earliest drink that that he has found, or that anyone has found uh, residues of uh, in an archaeological site, is from the uh, Jai Hu complex in china and that's about uh, 800 miles or sorry 800 kilometers south of beijing and this is a site that goes back from 7000 bc to about uh, 5600 bc and they found residues of a uh, mixed beverage that was uh, fermented from uh, rice grapes hawthorn fruit and honey so that had uh, the greatest hits of things that people fermented before the invention of distillation in the early Middle Ages. And so... Uh, I would call that wassail instead of grog, actually. That might indeed have been a better term. The Jahu the stuff is roughly
1: contemporaneous, um, unless he's got it dated uh, more uh, closely than, you know, about a thousand years. It's roughly contemporaneous with the earliest wine in uh, Georgia, the Republic of Georgia, not the state of Georgia, which is about 6,000 B.C., that that seems to be the first winemaking country that we know about that made grape wine um, from grapes, uh, which nicely fits, by the way, uh, in movie tie-in country with uh, good old Noah, whose ark fetched up round about those parts and immediately made wine, got blitzed, and lay down for three days, as anyone can imagine he would have went stuck on that ark with all
0: the animals. Right, and for that reason, Noah gives his name to the Noah hypothesis, which is the idea that basically civilization uh, radiated out uh, from the Near East uh, throughout the Mediterranean and into Europe basically along with wine that civilizations like the Phoenicians went out to find new customers for their uh, wines and first they introduced their drinking regalia uh, which at first the uh, various chieftains and potentates that they encountered put their own uh, local mixed fermented uh, drink into and then pretty quickly then switched over to being uh, wine connoisseurs. So uh, you can attribute drinking not just to uh, health when done moderately, but also, uh, according to the Noah hypothesis, the spread of uh, civilization as we uh, know it in the West.
1: Now, does McGovern uh, buy the NOAA hypothesis, or does McGovern say, eh, it's more complicated than that, as so many people tiresomely do?
0: He uh, uh, floats it without debunking it, so okay. uh, basically I think he regards that as a, as an open question. And I think you can sort of see that any explanation that attributes something as big as Western civilization to one thing... Or everybody's civilization, not just Right, powers, everybody's obviously. civilization. It, I think probably it's, uh, like a lot of things, is a... Uh, compelling oversimplification.
1: Yeah. But again, obviously, you're not going to have uh, fermentation and distillation without pottery. (laughs) And you're not going to have pottery without sitting in one place for at least long enough to make pots and let them dry. And you're not probably going to have it without some sort of agricultural practice, whether it be planting barley or or growing grapes or, or cultivating bees for their mead. So sedentary behavior, agriculture and pottery is a pretty good uh, you know, first cut at what makes you turn into a civilization as opposed to a bunch of guys uh, flocking around the Phoenician day trader. So I think that, you know, it's it's not, as, as oversimplifications go, I think it's not out of the realm of possibility.
0: Right, and you can take it back even further in time to the fact that cultures become aware of mead and honey and realize that you can use that to make a powerful psychotropic uh, beverage that uh, is key to religious rites because mm-hmm. it's about attaining an altered state of consciousness. It's one of several routes to an altered state of consciousness, and around that, even earlier than the you know there being wine merchants, you have a motivation right there to uh, hunt down more of this stuff, and perhaps even uh, a contributing motivation to take the sort of wild cereals that you're using, and perhaps you've found and uh, begun to ferment and begin to uh, cultivate them. That doesn't mean that they didn't understand them as food also, but uh, you know the role of alcohol in forging communities and uh, encouraging uh, sort of a move from the nomadic lifestyle to a uh, settled lifestyle uh, could go back even further than the time frame that the Noah hypothesis discusses. Right,
1: yeah. And um obviously depending on what plants you use, you can make a, a mood altering or even mind altering substance out of all manner of plants that don't necessarily require agriculture or pottery, because you could probably make uh exciting mushroom juice with a leather bag and some water and some mushrooms and soma, of course, the famous religious beverage of the uh of the Vedas, uh may or may not have been basically a which is, I guess, a kind of grass or something, but is the sort of thing that you can, you know, gather without necessarily having to, without having to have agriculture going on qua agriculture. So, yeah, there's there's certainly plenty of possibilities for altered states of consciousness without civilization.
0: Right. The, the big advantage of agriculture and beer, cereal al- alcohol, is that you can, uh, you, you can't store the beer for very long, but you can store the uh, source of the beer, the grain, mm-hmm. uh, for a long time, so that once you uh, start doing that, and unlike... Uh, and and wine to a it's a little more complicated I think to create the pottery that allows you to store wine for later use. But once you start being able to store grain for later use, that means that you can have those festivals or just drinking parties all year long, mm-hmm. uh, rather than waiting for the uh, right moment to be able to uh, uh, raid that mead or finding a bunch of fruit in season that has. Uh, fallen from the vine or that you then go and uh, collect from the vine and uh if you look at you know cultures the world over almost all of them uh, have a form of uh, alcohol the exception uh, being the uh, native americans uh, north and east of arizona uh, where tobacco uh, plays that uh, that role And there's uh, another few little handful of societies that didn't find or didn't care to find a form of alcohol but otherwise it's a uh, Uh, pretty consistent uh, throughout the globe with various prehistoric cultures.
1: Yeah, And I suspect that a lot of that is just a question of the poverty of archaeology in North America, as opposed to, because the, the Cahokian civilization, for example, in the Mississippi Valley in the Middle Ages, had plenty of corn, and it had plenty of cultural influence from Mesoamerica, which means that it could very easily have basically come up with some sort of fermented corn beer, which... They had in uh Mexico, although in Mexico, since they had McGay cactus, they didn't usually use corn as their fermentation basis, but it's, but it, I, I don't think it's that big a jump to assume that there was at least some sort of alcohol being produced in Cahokia or maybe in the mound building culture or not the mound building culture, but the other mound culture, the later mound culture in the Southeast. And we just haven't found the evidence of it because so much of that. Archaeology has basically been uh, neglected compared to, you know, digging around in Egypt or the Middle East or or China.
0: And one of the biggest mysteries that McGovern addresses is the cultivation of maize, right? That the original plant from which maize comes is like this grass called teosinte, Mm -hmm. uh, which contains, you know, five little tiny kernels. uh, And any one kernel from any modern cob of corn has way more nutritional value than any of those five little things. And and we know that that was cultivated over a period of many thousands of years until it became a, a cereal crop. Yeah. But uh, the stalks are heavily sugary so that the Teosinte itself was a useful plant because you could take it and ferment it and make an alcohol out of it. So, it is uh, because of the desire to uh, create an alcoholic beverage that that plant went through so many stages of human cultivation that is now, you know, bears the same resemblance to the Teosinte plant that a Shih Tzu bears to a wolf. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, Teosinte is one of the really interesting, I mean, there's a lot that can be said about sort of the Bioengineering that was done in in the Valley of Mexico with teosinte—it's just one of the great success stories, I think, of of early man to take that thing and turn it into tasty, delicious corn uh, or maize—is um, uh, it, it's pretty remarkable. And the fact that you know that there's a reason to grow it, and that reason is pretty much to get alcohol, is maybe another argument for there not being enough information about uh, pre-Columbian American alcoholism, as opposed to there being some uh, necessarily you know, a uh, larger environmental factor. I, I note here that uh, the Iroquois, and this is something that will bring a patriotic swell to both our hearts, uh, fermented uh, maple syrup from the sugar maple to make what sounds like a really terrific beverage...
0: <laughs> Yes. Um, and the only reason you would stop doing that is you then get better sources to ferment from.
1: Or that then the, uh, the, the white man brings whiskey and then you've um, uh, left fermented beverages behind forever.
0: Right. And the same thing happens in Egypt where mead starts out as the thing. But as soon as you figure out how to create alcohol through other means, uh, you're not going to waste that super valuable source of natural sugar on alcohol once you've got uh, grains and mm-hmm. fruits and grapes and all those uh, lovely things. So, uh, before we head off to our uh, party that we've got planned with a bunch of rats, uh, I think it's time to uh, take care of our final segment. The portrait of Madame Blavatsky glowering down at us as we ascend a creaky cobwebby staircase past the mysterious mystic sigil painted in a distasteful ichor, frankly, a very distasteful ichor, tells us that we're once more entering the plush offices of the consulting occultist. And this week I thought we would take a look at someone who's sort of a yet another transitional figure between magic and early, perhaps uh, misinformed or misused science, and that is Franz Anton Mesmer, and he is uh, important, we know, because uh, he still has a word named after him, the word of mesmerism, so he flourishes uh, during the Enlightenment. He gives it a big (laughs) case of swirly eyes. Uh, So Ken, uh, what is the first batch of stuff we want to know about Mesmer?
1: Okay, Mesmer is, uh, he's a German, but he that like most Germans of the time goes to Vienna to make his fortune, and indeed he does. He was um, he was a doctor in medicine. He was also a fan of astronomy and astrology. He was looking at the influence of the planets on people from the scientific perspective, uh, asking if they perhaps extended a magnetic field. This is roughly the time when people are beginning to get really excited at all of the great things that they've figured out. I mean, Kennel Digby has basically sort of straightened out magnets as far as how magnets function in the 1600s, but they're finding more and more things that that have a magnetic field to them and getting more and more excited about the possibility that magnetic fields might be more important than we thought. We're, We're just running up to... Uh, the discovery that they're the same thing is electricity, which is going to happen in another 100 years or another 50 years by now. So, Mesmer is interested in the magnetic influence and other influences of uh, the moon and planets on the human body, sort of like, is there truth to the ancient uh, superstitions of astrology? Perhaps the new science of Mesmerism can tell us. And it, although he was, of course, called it animal magnetism uh, when it was done by animals and one assumes planetary magnetism when it was done by planets. That having
0: him call it mesmerism would uh, you know, seem a little bold. It would have been
1: a little bit arrogant. But he makes enough money on doctoring that he is able to marry wealthy and makes himself even more wealthy. And with that money, he uh, sort of sets himself up and begins his animal magnetism practice there in Vienna. And in addition to doing that, also cuts uh, a couple of checks to a young up-and-comer named Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart who uh, needed the bread to uh, write operas and and such.
0: That justifies all manner of sins.
1: It uh, it does. And given that his sins are pretty much connected only to medical fraud and trying to have sex with French ladies, I don't know that we can really say a lot of bad things about our buddy (laughs) Franz Anton.
0: (laughs) He barely registers on the Crowley scale.
1: Oh, God, no. And so the medical fraud segment, however, uh, bites him in the butt in Vienna when he famously does not cure a rich and influential uh, blind girl and is therefore asked to leave Vienna in a great terrifying hurry. He has previously angered the church by engaging in a public dispute with a famous exorcist in which he says, your exorcism powers do not come from God, they come from your own animal magnetism. You, uh, Father Gessner, are actually a gifted animal magnetizer, just like myself.
0: So does this make him a, a more of a rationalist than an, an occultist, who is seeking what were then scientific explanations for things that other people considered metaphysical?
1: Well, I think as we have discussed previously in the consulting occultist precincts, the line between the rationalist and the occultist is often a chronological line. Um, it's like... Uh, the famous talleyrand line that treason is a matter of dates uh, <laughs> <laughs> and i think uh, rationalism is also uh, certainly to the orthodox historians of rationalism a matter of dates if once once one has read Thomas Kuhn, one is a little less uh, eager to uh, jump on that particular train. But at that time, yes, he was uh, using a more scientific argument than Father Gessner, who was saying, I'm driving out demons because of the power of God. Duh, demons. And uh, Mesmer was uh, saying, speaking not about whether or not demons exist, what you're doing is curing them with animal magnetism. And he, obviously, he had patients who came back, but then every quack in history has had patients that come back. Um, But he did engage in what you can assume for people who either had psychosomatic ailments or were mostly sort of nervous cases, just sitting in a calming room with Franz Anton Mesmer, touching you uh, for a great length of time. And depending, I suppose, on how much you were willing to pay and how cute you were, Where he touched you was also a matter of negotiation. But he basically would would sit there, he'd make sort of hypnotic passes or mesmeric passes, I I suppose we should say, to sort of activate the animal magnetism flowing between him and his patient. Um, He pretty much believed in the force, right? I mean, the... His notion of the animal magnetic field was as a energy field that surrounds all living things. It unifies us. It binds us. It brings the universe together. And he basically set himself up as a doctor in Paris after being run out of Vienna, doing the same sorts of things for a better paying, more influential, more famous clientele, which is what gets him across the uh, nose, not only of the official medical body in Paris, in Paris the Faculty of Medicine, but also the uh, French Royal Academy of Sciences, because both of them feel like maybe Franz Anton is, you know, stepping on their turf. And so the king, in a apparently uncharacteristic bolt of rationality, appoints a commission, including uh, the chemist Lavoisier, the physician Guyotin, inventor of the uh, automatic beheading machine, uh, the astronomer Bayi, who is one of the great astronomers um, and because his last name is hard to pronounce, I don't think gets as much love as he ought to. And a young f- at heart chap named Benjamin Franklin. In other words, the player characters. <laughs> exactly. If the player characters are awesome. And, and, and why shouldn't they and be? And why shouldn't they be? We are all <laughs> in favor of awesome player characters. <laughs> it, there's a, there's a really terrible X Men ripoff here. <laughs> I will use my power of beheading to stop them, says Joseph Ignace Gutin. Um, anyway. They show up and they investigate Mesmer and they do not investigate whether or not he cures people. They investigate whether or not the magnetic fluid exists.
0: Right. And they they discover, do they discover evidence of uh, midichlorians?
1: They they do not discover evidence of midichlorians. They are staunch believers in the original trilogy. And they um, uh, say that it is the benefit of the, tr- of the of the treatment is imaginary, which does not, again, as we know now, mean that the treatments weren't working because we know a great deal about the psychosomatic uh, impact of medicine. We, you, you, you can look at things where people literally know they're taking a placebo and they still get better.
0: The placebo effect is very real.
1: It's very real. And so uh, mesmerism, which often ended with a performance by Franz Anton on his amazing magnetic glass harmonica, which was not a harmonica, but a bunch of glasses set up In such ways, like when you rub your finger around the side of a wine glass, uh, depending on how much wine is in it, it makes a higher or lower tone. He built a musical instrument on that basis.
0: And and there are a couple of pieces, I forget who, but by major composers of the time that were written for that instrument.
1: Mozart wrote something for the harmonica, as uh, did a number of people, yes. And so uh, that was sort of always the concluding bit, especially once he had to start doing, uh, he was so popular that he would have to do, mass mesmeric cures and here they would all sit sort of with their feet in a bath and he would be able to magnetize the water and the magnetism would flow up through them and he'd play on his little harmonica and everyone
0: would have a great time so so speaking of uh connections between segments we see that uh he was a little bit circus too and there's a performance aspect to what he, he had was doing. his
1: circus folk aspect as well and one suspects a little bit of early alcohol and so um yeah. Once the Royal Society comes back and says there's no such thing as animal magnetism, you be crazy, uh, he is forced to leave Paris because all of his rich clients dump him. And this is in 1785, and he writes a bunch of angry letters about, you know, how um, uh, Benjamin Franklin will rue the day, rue it, I, I I tell you, which make great things to drop into a campaign.
0: Right. and And the irony, of course, is that what he was doing did actually have an effect. He did help to discover... Hypnosis, he just yep. uh, attributed the wrong causation to it. Exactly.
1: Um, yeah, there's there, there, there's a lot of things that, A, because we don't know what exactly what he was doing, and B, we don't yet know how things like the placebo effect or hypnosis actually function, as opposed to that we know that they do function. Um, we don't know exactly what he might or might not have been doing, as opposed to what he thought he was doing, which he wrote an 88-page book telling us what he thought he was doing. At any rate, after the French Revolution, there's a brief... Uh, sort of upsurge in people saying, aha, Mesmer was there, you know, hypnotizing people and or mesmerizing people into being revolutionaries and overthrowing good King Louis, who was so mean as to appoint a commission to chase him out of Paris, um, which is another thread that sort of shows up as you go later and later where the Svengali figure is uh conflated with the Illuminatus in popular culture and uh winds up dying in 1815 in Baden, which I think is pretty much where... People who get chased out of every decent principality in Germany went to die. Um, And uh, that is the end of Franz Anton, except, as you point out, through his his word mesmerism, which stays with us today, for what vampires do.
0: Right. So we've got the League of Extraordinary Scientists, who Mm -hmm. uh, may initially be convened in order to investigate what he's doing. And then you could uh, make their first case, uh, finding out the emanation from the outer dark that is, in fact, uh, responsible for... Uh, what uh, mesmer is doing, or uh, finding out that uh, you know his uh, claims to have nothing to do with uh, demons and exorcism are in fact a, a, a ruse, and then from then on you could have them uh, continue to go on and crack other cases in mm-hmm. the uh, pre-revolutionary period in France. Uh, and of course, you mentioned this Svengali figure, who is responsible uh, for a lot of uh, pop culture as the uh, menacing hypnotist who has come for our our women and therefore also dovetails with the uh, Dracula figure. Mm. Um, Any other uh, obvious things to uh, mine in and around the story of Anton Mesmer as we use it as fodder for games and fiction?
1: Well, I think that one of the... I mean Pre-Revolutionary Paris is one of those great periods where there's nothing but delicious, delightful mountebanks. So you have uh, Cagliostro is coming through Paris at roughly the same period of time. He basically dodges out of Paris right around the time that uh, King Louis is getting around to appointing investigative bodies, and Cagliostro probably suspected rightly that the investigative body would not approve of his, uh, magic. Uh, Saint Germain dies the same year that Mesmer gets his investigation. So, the Comte de Saint Germain is another great figure of mystery and occult uh, lore. Who I can't believe. we haven't yes, done that's a That's two about future segments yet. right there. Right. Um, but you've got, uh, so, sort of a, a, um, a, a legion of doom that you could assemble to battle of uh, the League of Extraordinary Scientists, if you wanted to. And I think one of the more fun things would be that uh, you you hinted at with your esoterror thing, that the Legion of Doom is trying to bring about a magical revolution, that they realize that we're at a tipping point in terms of what people believe. We're at the edge of one of those Coonian paradigm shifts. And so if they can sort of sneak magic in the back way... And it comes about that people once again believe that there are demons everywhere, that there are occult forces coming down from the planets, that the outer dark will be that much, you know, closer. The veil will get that much thinner, and it is the heroic efforts of uh, Lavoisier and Bayi and Benjamin Franklin to cover it up that uh, thicken the veil again. And so you have sort of a, a larger metaphysical struggle, and it's not magic versus science; it's magic versus guys who know better than to tell everyone to believe in magic
0: uh well i think we've uh well covered a uh, mesmer or at least i'm getting sleepy very, <laughs> so very sleepy, sleepy and that's i think we've uh, successfully wrangled uh, yet another podcast
1: stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors
0: atlas games phoenix dork tower
1: pro fantasy software
0: and pelgrine
1: press Music, as always, is by James Semple.
0: Buy us some virtual mead by hitting the donate button at KenandRobinTalkAboutStuff.com.
1: Joining such illustrious patrons
0: as Russell Spickelmeyer And returning donor, Samuel Kreider.
1: Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, podcast, or rope trick by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet
0: at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.